In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find God's covenant promise to David, the, the king. And uh, it's, it's sometimes referred to, or most times referred to, as the Davidic covenant. And there's just a couple things, before we jump into this promise, a couple things that we have to remind ourselves of. First of all, and very important, is that this particular promise was first and foremost a promise to David and not to you and I. It's why it's called the Davidic covenant and not the Mike covenant or the Sue covenant or the Bubba covenant or whatever your name is. Uh, it, was, it was first and foremost to him. The reason we have to understand that is because as we work through this, we'll find certain promises that we have no idea how they connect to us. And here's why, because they don't connect to you. They were for David. However, there are principles and implications in the promises that he made for David that does impact you and me as well. Second thing I want you to be aware of, and that is to make sure that you don't get too much of you into this text. In other words, it's very easy for us as we're looking through this promise for all of us who are maybe going through a difficult time to immediately jump in and go, oh, that's me, that's my promise, that's, that, that's for me, and try to find out whatever it is that's going to most benefit us. Where we need to begin is God. We need to begin with God. All Scripture, especially the promises of God in the Word of God, are far more about Him than they are about us. Now, why is this so important? Well, I don't know why everybody is here this morning. I would love to think they're all here just to worship God and to demonstrate their love to God and honor Him. But I also know some people are here motivated primarily because they're facing a ton of difficulties, hardships, problems within marriage and friends and family and children. And, and, and the truth is maybe you don't attend normally or maybe you do, but today you're here because you need some kind of comfort, you need some kind of help. And let me tell you, I'm not condemning you at all for that. You came to the right place for that. You came to a place of mercy. God is a merciful God, a loving God, a gracious God who, who wants to meet you where you are, who wants to help you in the midst of the difficulty that you are in. However, you may not understand this and you may not even believe this, but, but I am absolutely confident that your greatest need, no matter what difficulty you're facing, is for you and for me and everyone in here, our greatest need this morning is to walk away with a grander, clearer, more accurate picture of who our God is. Here's why. When you know who He is, that's when you begin to understand the help that you receive, the hope that you have because of the grace and the mercy of this God who we ultimately serve. That's when you begin to have hope in the midst of that difficulty. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump right into the text and we're going to learn about God. If you think God is, in, is boring, this is going to be the most boring sermon you have ever heard. So brace yourself. It's all about God, so we're going to start with Him. What does this promise tell about God? And then what we're going to do is we're going to very carefully figure out how does that apply to us? What does that mean to us in an everyday life? So three things. Here we are. First of all, I had said two points in the beginning. That doesn't count against my three points in the sermon. Okay, I just want to make sure we still got three points. All right, three things. Here we go. God's wisdom is greater than our feelings. God's greater than our feelings. His wisdom is greater than our feelings. In verse 1, we see David doing something that he hasn't done in some time. He's at rest. He, he's literally, 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 can't say the word, he's at rest. And so uh, here he is in a place that we haven't seen him before. Uh, God has, through his power, helped him to defeat or at least subdue the enemies that are around him. And we find him now resting in his palace. 
This is something we haven't seen up to this particular point. Uh, actually, King David is experiencing what many of us really pursue and desire. It's a life of comfort, security, uh, uh, the ease of life. And now David has finally gotten, got it, and now he doesn't know what to do with it. Now he's actually disappointed in it. In fact, he actually sees something inherently wicked within it. So he's struggling with this life of ease, so he calls on a prophet by the name of Nathan. Nathan comes to him, and he says this in verse 2. See now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Here was what he was struggling with. He was living in this lavish uh, cedar-made palace that had been made to him by, the, by King Haram, the king of Tyre. And there is God in, in the ark of the covenant dwelling in this makeshift mobile tent and he doesn't feel right about this. Now, he doesn't come right out and, and say what he wants to do about it, but the prophet, being wise, is able to read through between the lines and realizes that what David wants to do is to build God a house. That's what he wants to do. And so look at the response of the prophet, verse 3. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. This all sounds very good, right? I want to do something really great for God. Well, that sounds great. Do everything that God has laid on your heart. You just go and do it. And oftentimes, God's people, we speak to each other like this all of the time. Hey, do you, I, I just really feel God wants me to. Well, you go ahead and, you, you, you go ahead and do it. Sounds good. There's a problem with that here. The problem with that is, is that, that this prophet was supposed to do one thing. He wasn't supposed to speak his opinion. He wasn't supposed to go by his gut. He was supposed to do one thing, and that is to refer to God about what, what the king wanted. He was to find the answer, and then he was to come back and say, Thus saith the Lord. He wasn't supposed to go by his gut. He was supposed to go by the revelation of God himself. The problem here is he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't seek out God's wisdom, he doesn't seek out God's will, and he doesn't speak the word of God, he speaks his own word. But everything about this, in the light of David and in the mind of Nathan, it all made so much sense because this is, this is what their gut was ultimately saying was the right thing to do. This was all logical, it was rational, it was morally good. It's what you and I would ultimately say, hey, this is a no-brainer, go and do it, all of that is great. Well, it was all great. It was everything except for one thing, the will of God. God comes back and he responds. He doesn't take it very much time at all and letting him know that this is not the direction he wanted to go. In verse 4, he says, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and he said, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? Now understand, this is a rhetorical question. It's not a flat-out no, but that's exactly what God is saying. Says you made plans to go and build me a house. I don't want you to build me a house. Now, what 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 I want you to notice is this is not a bad thing that David desires to do something great for God. It, it's not wrong. In fact, there's no wrong motivation that we can read here. In fact, in fact, God actually says to Nathan, He says, "This is my servant David," meaning that David's motivation was just to serve the Lord. I mean, he's living in the lap of luxury. God's living in a tent. It just doesn't seem right to him. I want to do something about it. But God turns around and, in essence, tells him, "No." So, what is this all about? It's a reminder. It's a reminder that we need more than just instinct, reason, good intentions, and gut feelings to make the right decisions in this life in our pursuit for God. We need the very wisdom of God that comes from God. See, there's these presumptions that we often make, and it makes me nervous because I see it in myself. 
This last week, I was thinking of all the different decisions that I make about my family and my home and about bills and about ministry. And I'm telling, this might scare you, but it's my anniversary, so be nice. Is this, is how many things I actually do and think are a good idea, and I never bring it before God to seek if it's what God would want me to ultimately do. And this seems to be a common presumption amongst, among God's people. In fact, we see it over and over. It's almost like a, a, a small theme that runs through First and Second Samuel. Let me give you just one example. In First Samuel chapter 16, it's, it's uh, one of those stories that I, I, I love so much where, where, where Samuel is called by God to be able to go to the home of Jesse, who was David's dad. Do you remember this? And we don't remember in First Samuel. I'm sure you remember because I taught it, and you remember everything I taught. And so, so he's supposed to go, and as he goes to the house, he, is, he knows he's supposed to find the next king of Israel, and he's supposed to anoint the king. Well, when he walks in, he sees his oldest son, Jesse's oldest son. It's Eliab. And he looks at Eliab, and he, he surely this is God's anointed. He says, when he looked at Eliab, surely Lord's anointed is before me now. He checked all the boxes. He was big. He was the first born. He was the wisest. He was the best leader of the group. He was the strongest. This had to be the will of God. And right when he's begin to unscrew that, that, that horn of oil to anoint him, God stops him and interrupts divinely, just like he did with David and, and, and Nathan here. And he says, he says to him, but the Lord said to Saul, he says, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his measure, of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, but the Lord looks on the heart. What he's basically saying is, Samuel, you're out there doing my will. You're being obedient. All of this is the right motivation, but you can't go by your gut. You can't go by your intellect. You can't sit there and place your faith in those things. The only thing you can place your faith in is the wisdom of God because my thoughts are above your thoughts and my ways are above, above your ways. And this is the same wisdom that you and I desperately need every single day. Look, God's wisdom and will is sometimes very apparent. Would you agree? Yes. Why? Because it's where? In the Word of God, in black and white. If you're having some financial problems today and you sit back and you're thinking to yourself, what I, what I, what, what, I'm praying to God right now that if he wants me to go ahead and rob a bank in Yuli. All right, do, do, does God want me to do that? Now, I will say one thing. You've got your choice of banks and Yuli, all right? The only thing we have more of than banks is mattress stores, right? That's the only thing that we have more of. And so every time they begin to build, my son says, hey, look, another mattress store. And we don't even know what it is, but he's probably right. That's what it's going to be. But we don't ask God, do you want me, is it okay for me to go and rob this, this bar? Because God's already spoken on that. Here's his wisdom. Thou shalt not steal. It's wrong for you to be able to do that. It's not even something that we pray about. But I think that you would identify this with me as there are millions of decisions that you and I are making throughout our lifetime that is not that clear. It is just not that clear. And many times, God, I think that God's people use a little bit too much freedom. And, and, and let, let me say this. I, I don't want to say this in a way that's going to make you scared to make any decisions in your life, thinking that you're going to miss the will of God, and then your life and everybody's around you is going to fall apart. I don't mean that at all. I don't mean to drive fear in your heart. This is what I think the text is doing, is that you and I cannot presume that we automatically know the mind of God and everything that he wants to do. Instead, you and I need to be completely reliant of every decision that we make, going to him, seeking his wisdom rather than the wisdom that we already have seeking his wisdom and here's the good news about it because in the book of james he says if any of you lacks wisdom anybody lack wisdom 
The Bible says, ask and I will give it to you without reproach. Do you know what that means? He won't do what we do as parents when our kids are like, can you, can you, can you get me water? And you're like, can you just give me five minutes to sit down and be quiet? God never does that. He says, you give wisdom, I'll give as much of my wisdom as you, as you want as long as you come to me, ask and depend on it. Why is that so beautiful? Because God's wisdom is greater than our feelings. You've got to understand that. We've got to understand that. So many times I go with folks and they're like, man, this is, just, this is just what I think I'm going to do. Sometimes it's blatantly against the word of God. Sometimes, even as elders, we sit back and we'll go, we think that this is the right direction to be able to go. Seems logical, seems right. We're doing this for the glory of God and God will intervene in some way, shape, or form at some point and go, well, clearly, this was not what, what God ultimately wanted. What God wants is you and I's full dependence on a superior mind of God to lead us through everything that we need to do in leading, uh, living unto Him, all right? So that's the first good news. God's wisdom is greater than our feelings. Number two, God's help is greater than our trouble. God's help is greater than our trouble. After giving David a giant no to his plans to build him a home, God does something that I love here with Nathan. He continues to share and to give insight, uh, more insight to who he is and what he's all about. In verse 6, we read, I have not lived, this is God speaking, I have not lived in the house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. God points out to Nathan and then to David. He goes, do you remember back when I was leading my people out of captivity, out of Egypt? He goes, I didn't have a house then. I, I didn't have a house. Later on, I asked him to build me a house, but it was just kind of a make, makeshift tent, this little tent tabernacle type thing, but it was no permanent home. He goes, the reason why is because I was moving around with my people. As they moved, I moved. Then he says in verse 7, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see what he's saying? He goes, if you look back through our history, as long as I've been with our people, which has been from the beginning, from the time that I first called out Abraham, he goes, has there ever been a time that I commanded of our people that they need to build me a house? The answer to that would be absolutely not. The question, though, is why? Why does God not want a house? Very simply put, because houses are places of rest. Well, at least they should be. Not always at my house. There are places of rest, but they are supposed to be. This is exactly what the whole point of the text is. Do you remember how we opened up? David was at rest with all of his enemies. Where? In the palace, in his home. Do you remember that? You, after this, after this exhausting message that you hear, some of you will go home and go, I just need some rest. At the end of a long week, where do you want to go? I, 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 just, I just want to go home. I just want to go home and, and, and sit in a recliner. You go on vacation, which is supposed to be about rest, but you drive all night to get home one day before work, just sit there and go, man, I just got to go home and get some rest before I go back to work. Why? It's always at the home. God says, I can't have a home or have you build me a home because I can't rest until you rest. See, at this point, David and all his men are still moving around. And as long as his people are unsettled, as long as they're fighting his enemies, God's going where they're going. He's looking after them. He's caring. He's fighting before them. And he's fighting the very enemies of God. He sits there and says, as long as you're fighting, as long as you're moving, he goes, guess what? I can't rest as well. What an encouraging message from God to David. 
And so we see some of this. And one of my favorite stories in, in the Bible is the story of Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal. Do you remember this? 400 prophets of Baal, Elijah, they, they basically have kind of like a, like a sacrifice off where they're just kind of like, hey, here's my bull, there's your bull, we're going to pray for the fire of God, whatever God you know, sends fire down, that's the one true God. So all the prophets are Baal, okay, hey, great, there's 400 of us. And so they sit back and they begin to do their little, you know, their little dance and do all kinds of things, begin to cut themselves to try to get their God's attention. And they do this for hours and hours and hours. And finally, Elijah begins to mock them. And he says, cry aloud, for he is a God, small g. He says, either he is musing or he is relieving himself. That is what it sounds like. Or he is on a journey. Uh, he's on vacation or perhaps he is asleep and he must be awakened. And so the reason that he's mocking him is because in the mind of of Uh, of Elijah, he realizes that the one true God does not rest when his children are not resting. He will not rest until his children rest. And so guess what he does? He calls down. He calls down on God. God immediately responds and he walks away. Why does he respond? Because God does not rest when his children in their midst of their need and their problems and their troubles, he is constantly working on their behalf. It's immensely encouraging to me. David couldn't build, look, David couldn't build a home. Here's why. Because the people were not at rest. God's promise had been they would be in the promised land. He would put away their enemies. They would be at peace. They wouldn't be at peace through David's entire reign. It's not until Solomon would ultimately come. And then all of a sudden that peace would come and then he would be able to build a home because now his people were ultimately at rest. So there are a couple points of application for this. Let me just give you, let me give you two actually. The first is immediate. How many times in the midst of difficulty and hardships that we're facing that you and I feel completely alone? You're not. How many times do you and I sometimes feel as though in the midst of our trouble that God is a million miles away? He's not. You say, but that's what I feel. See, God's greater than your feeling, and he's not, acting you, he's not asking you to go by your feeling. He's acting for you to go by your faith in the person of God. We believe that God is with us even when we don't feel that he is with us. He is working on our behalf. He is fighting on our behalf even when we don't feel it. How do we know? Because he told us so in his word. We believe this over the word of God. So that's the immediate implication for, for immediate. But there's a greater fulfillment than this. Because not only did God continue to work and continue to work on behalf of his people, not rest until we rest, but God continued to work. It's not only in a temporal rest, but a future rest. And and this is what we see. When you begin to read all of this uh, and go back and read more in depth of this, there's tons there. There's volumes been written about this passage of scripture. But what we find is all of a sudden he begins to talk about um, uh, David's descendant, Solomon, and you begin to follow it. You're like, oh, that's his son, and that makes complete sense, and all that sounds just like Solomon. You get to verse 14, and you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like he's talking to Solomon anymore. He's talking about one that would come, but this one sounds much greater than Solomon. For example, in verse 14, listen to this. God said, I will be, I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits in, uh, uh, iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, 
as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You read some of that, and you're like, there's something much deeper, grander going on than just him having a son and letting him, his son uh, build a house for God. Instead, what we're finding is he's talking about whom? Christ, the ultimate one that would come, the very son of God, the one who would come and he would die not for his own sins, but he would receive stripes for the sins of mankind. And it is his kingdom that will last forever. So this is telling us, this is the beautiful thing. Don't don't miss this. Some of us are finding real hope in the fact that God does not rest while you do not rest, while you're awake at night, while you're going through trouble, that he's in the midst of that trouble, working, caring, nurturing for you. That's great. But you know what really does it for me? This section. This section that God sent his only son to not just give me a temporal rest, but to give me an eternal rest. See, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth. And why did he come? He came to work He himself said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You are part of that many. And so what does he do? He does his work. He's born of a virgin. He lives a perfect life. He's tempted in every way. He sins not. He's nailed to a cross. And on that cross, the very wrath of God that was meant not for him, but for you and I poured out on him until it was satisfied. He was dead. He was placed in a tomb. He rose on the third day. Amen? He rose on the third day. And then what happens to him then? Remember, while he's on earth, he doesn't rest. He doesn't have a home. The foxes have holes, the birds have have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to what? To lay his head. Why doesn't he rest? He doesn't rest until his people have eternal rest, and he did that through his death, burial, and resurrection. And how do we know that he's done? Because he then, at that point, went up into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. He didn't rest until you and I could receive the eternal rest of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God is greater than our feelings God's help is greater than our trouble. And three, God's grace is greater than we think. God's grace is greater than we think. We keep thinking that word, word grace. It's getting what we don't deserve. That's what it is. God's unmerited favor. Didn't do anything for it. God was just good. In spite of us, even when we were at our very worst, God is a gracious God. Notice this. That grace is greater than what you and I think. Now look at verse 8. The Bible says there, he says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and and, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. What God's doing is he's reminding David that the reason he has been good to him is not because David has been good, but because it has been his grace. And he is pictured and he has gone back and he's reminding him of his past grace, the grace that he extended to him in the past. He says, do you remember when you were a shepherd? And do you remember when when the prophet went to your dad's house and he was looking for somebody that was going to be the king? You were such the least of all of them that your dad didn't even call you for a lineup. He left you out in the field. He didn't think it was possible for you to be the one that God would chose. But guess what he did? He goes, he chose you. Nobody else in the world would have ever chosen you, but I chose you, brought you out, I exalted you, and now you are the king of all of Israel. Folks, why did David do it? This is why it's so important for us not to sit there and go, we need to be more like David. Because the truth of the matter is, is God did not exalt him because David was a good man. He exalted him because God is a gracious and good God. 
And so he exalts him, and he brings him up to this particular place, and it's why he ultimately worships God in the way that he does. And, and so what we find here is, here's what I think is happening. Even though David's motivation, I think, was correct, in that he wanted to do something for God, I think his view of God was a little skewed. I think it was a little pagan. Here's why. I think part of the reason why he wanted to build this house to God is not only because it was right, but he thinks that maybe, just maybe, that it will also secure his future if he's doing something good for this God who is ultimately good for him. And so this is a pagan viewpoint. By the way, if you've ever been around the world, the most beautiful buildings, ornate buildings you will ever see, lavish buildings, most expensive to build, will almost always be houses of worship. From the time of David all the way up, people build these lavish, amazing, massive mosques and buildings and churches. Why are they doing it? Well, it could be because of an act of their worship, but let me tell you what I think it is more so of, is because people believe automatically if they'll just take care of their God and treat them well, then one day their God is going to treat them well. So it could very well that there might be a little bit of this in David's thinking, Yes, he's been good to me, but I want him to be continuing good to me. So maybe if I'm good to him and give him a good house, maybe he'll continue to secure my house in the future. Do you see how the thinking is? He did something to me. I need to do something for him to secure what's, what's going to happen in the future. And so some of this very well can happen. God could have sensed that this is what is happening. It's kind of a, I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. But God comes and he, and he says something to them. He, in essence, wants to remind him again that he didn't do all of these things because of David. He did these because of his demonstration of grace. So he reminds him of all that past grace, but then he does something else. Then he sits there and goes, I don't want you to build something for me. Instead, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you grace upon grace. Well, wait a minute. I want to do something for you to secure the future. No, no, no. I don't want you to do anything for me. Just like you couldn't earn your salvation, you can't earn the security of your future. So I'm going to give you grace for the past and choosing you, but now I'm going to give you grace for the future to continue to take care of you, and I don't want you to build a building for me, because if you build a building for me and a house for me, you're going to think you had something to do with this. So notice, the, notice what he says in verse 9. He says, and I will make for you a great name. This is the grace upon grace, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant, and they, they may dwell in, in their own place and not be disturbed anymore. And the violent man shall, shall, um, shall afflict them no more so formally from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is so weird, right? Here's David. I'm going to build you a house. No, you're not. I'm going to build you a house. Okay, do, do you see how this works? This doesn't even make any sense to us. This is grace upon grace. He goes, I'm going to build you a house, God, to be able to secure my future. And, and the reason he's doing it is because he wants to get in well with God. And when he says house, he means an actual temple. When God says, no, 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 you're not going to do that. I'm going to give you grace upon grace. You're not going to do anything that's going to secure your future. I'm going to secure your future because I'm a good God. The same God that saved you is going to take care of you in the present and is going to take care of you in the future. And you're not going to have anything, nothing of my care is going to have anything to do with you. It's going to have to do with my grace and my mercy. It's a beautiful picture of what he, he, he does here. And, and so he says, he says, you're not going to do this. You're not going to have anything to do with all of this. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You know, as I read this, and I was thinking of applications, and that's what's hard sometimes is to come up with appropriate applications, but this is what I was thinking. It's exhausting to live with a pagan view of God, is it not? It's exhausting. To live in a way that sits there and think, you know, I, I really need to get back to church. I, 
I really probably need to give a little bit in the offering, and I probably need to maybe help the orphans and, I don't know, teach somewhere, or hold a door or a pamphlet, because the truth is, things have been going very well in my life, and maybe if I just get my life together, God's willing to be able to help me. It's an exhausting way to live. Do you understand there's why there's no joy in the world religions around us? Because every time they move around, they're trying to do a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, in hopes that God may, 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 may be gracious to them and care for them. The Christian walk and the Christian message is completely different. Okay, so see the difference? Real quick, I'm going to build something to you. You did something good for me. I'm going to do something good for you so that I can secure you doing something good for me. It's this constant thing that the pagan world does. God sits back and says, you know what? I was good to you. I will continue to be good to you. Not because you are anything good, but because I am good. That is the way to live the Christian life. Do you say, well, then we do, do we ever serve God? We do. But it is not exhausting to serve God when he keeps giving you grace and grace and grace and grace, and you finally realize, I don't have to work for his love. I don't have to work for his affection. I don't have to work for his help. He's just going to give it because he's good, not because I'm good. Now, I want to do something for him, but not because it's going to get me something, but it's because he is giving me everything. That's the difference. Huge difference. These are the truths that we know of God. God's wisdom is greater than our feelings. It's greater than your gut check. We've got to be seeking his wisdom at all times. He knows and he will give it to you. God's help is greater than our trouble. You think that God is just going to let you by yourself, that you're alone in the midst of the difficulty and hardship you're at? You are not alone. He is there and he will not rest until you rest. Number three, his grace is greater than you think. Many of you here, some of you here, you have no problem with looking back at God's past grace. You have no problem you'd be the first one to get up there, hey, amen, we're saved by grace through faith alone. But then why are you working for his goodness now, hoping that if you do just enough, that he's going to be good to you and watch out for you? He will look after you because he saved you from the beginning. He called you out, not because you were good, but because he was gracious towards you, and he will continue to do it until the day you die. Does that make me want to go out and disobey God? No, it makes me want to serve him. It makes me want to serve him. Why? Because he's given it all to me. It's an act of worship. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We glorify you. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for